So, Shavuot. For those of us who were there, who got to go, I know for those of you online that weren't able to make it, you got to see a bunch of stuff online. Wow. Um, I've been walking this way for almost 20 years. I've been practicing Judaism for almost 20 years. And I can count on one hand how many experiences I've had that were that incredible. Being able to be with my family in faith. And as we were doing Hallel, um, I, I, I couldn't contain myself anymore. Uh, went a little Hasidic on everybody. Started jumping because it was so exciting. Because I looked, you know, as we, as we had the kids up here and they were doing their songs and everything, almost every nationality was represented. That blew me away. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the kingdom. Amen. Every nation, every tongue. And we got to see that, and it was so amazing. I was just, I, I was on cloud nine. Like every time I'd look at somebody, I'd get teary-eyed, and I'm not typically a crier. Uh, I leave that to a couple of my kids. But, <laughs> but it was incredible. I mean, we were, you know, especially when you study what the sages say about, you know, the uh, Shavuot festival, it's the giving of the Torah. They're at the mountain. God is ministering to his people. He's speaking to his people. The Midrash says that when Hashem spoke to the people on the mountain, that as his voice came out, it says in the Torah, it says, and they saw the voices. It doesn't say they heard. The literal word is they saw. How do you see a voice? And the rabbis tell us, they say that when he spoke, it came out like sparks. And those sparks turned into torches, and those torches rested above the heads of every single person. And they heard the Torah spoken in their own language. Does that sound familiar? What was will be. So when we had the Pentecost, as you often hear in the Pentecostal church, I was in the Assemblies of God, um, Baptist first, um, that's a big deal. Like every sermon starts with Acts 2, right? And then somebody stands up and, you know, who knows what happens after that. But, um, <laughs> but it, you know, that's, that's a big, big deal. And there's all oh, the tongues of fire and they heard in their own language and this and that. And they begin to prophesy and all this stuff. Well, all of that happened at the mountain the same day, 1,500 years before. God was doing it again. And I felt like we got just a taste of that in this Shavuot. Yeah, nobody rattled out speaking in tongues. You know, Benny Hinn wasn't knocking people over with his coat or anything like that. We didn't have anything like that. Um, but we had connection. We had a connection with Hashem. We met together, filled this room. And we opened up and we prayed ancient prayers that our master would have prayed on that same day. As a child growing up, we connected. Past, present future. We connected with people all over the world. That's the kingdom. It was incredible. May God grant us the ability to do it again next year. It may be even better. Maybe with Messiah coming, that would, that would work. So, but, you know, if you read in Matthew, I'm sure, you know, as we're talking, you might have even thought of this scripture, that the master takes three disciples with him, go ups to the, go, go ups to the mountain. 
what language is that, Jim? <laughs> um, it goes up to the mountain. Moses and Elijah appear. The master's elevated. The mountain of transfiguration. What does Peter say? Let, let's make booths. Let's stay here a while. And he, but when he looked up, it was just the master. And it says, and then they went down from the mountain. Kind of depressing. <laughs> you just wanted to hang out there. You know, as a kid growing up, you know, of course in the Baptist church, we would have our youth rallies. And, um, and it was something I looked forward to all the time. It was called Hot Hearts. And, uh, you know, I'd always go and, and I would just, I would feel connection and I would come away. In fact, I felt the call into the ministry when I was 15 years old by a very tall black guy. You might know his name, Vodi Bakum. He's now a dean at a college in, I think it's Zimbabwe or something like that. Amazing guy. First time I ever heard Hebrew was out of his mouth. And beautiful, first of all, but just amazing. I, I don't remember any other sermons in my life uh, as, as a you know, Baptist or whatever. I remember his because they were so powerful. But as it always is, even when I felt the call into the ministry at 15, I'm like, man, this is great. I'm on fire. We're going to do this thing. You get off the mountain. You come back to life. You have to go back to school. You have to go back to work. You have to deal with people you don't want to deal with, like your parents. <laughs> and uh, so I had to, I had to return to uh, you know, my, uh, what would you call it, uh, my teenage rebellion of Captain Crunch, Christian Rock, and obstinance. So, uh, and it always happened, and it's like, I always struggled. Why can't we just stay on that high all the time? Why can't we be that excited and that connected all the time? That's not how the world works. And I think that was a problem growing up that I misunderstood, was that when, when we connect with God, when we connect with our community, we can't stay like that all the time. So what do we do with it? What's the point? Because it's just a real letdown when you, get, when you get so excited and you connect with people and you're just like, oh, I could just stay here forever. And then you have to go back to the normal life. Did that benefit you at all or just make you realize, wow, we're really missing some stuff, aren't we? So I want to share with you that, you know, Shavuot is over. Now we're back down from the mountain. Now we've had to return to our jobs, our lives, things we would probably rather not do. We'd rather be here with one another, praying, connecting, worshiping God, being in one heart and one mind, as it was in Acts 2. But we can't constantly live on those mountaintop experiences. We have to come back down. So there, you know, these, these are times of connection. They're times of drawing near. But they're not the way of life. Not yet. We are to take those experiences with us, the joy of what we've learned, how we've connected, and elevate our lives and the lives of others. We're to build the kingdom. Not just wait for it. You know, one of the songs I absolutely hate, I'm a, I'm a big John Mayer fan. He's an amazing guitarist. And, of course, he had Pino Palladino playing for him. And if you're a bass player like me, you know who that is. He's one of the best. Um, but he has a song that has always bothered me. And you've probably heard it. 
We keep waiting for the world to change. And if you listen to the chorus, it's like, well, you know, life's just really bad, and we know that there are these people that are in control, and we just can't do anything about it, so we're just going to wait for the world to change. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's what's wrong with the world today, because the good people keep doing nothing. They keep saying, well, we just need to wait for the world to change. And then we have people like Jim and Keitha that just knock our world upside down because the man's fearless. You need to spend some time talking with him, and you'll, you'll feel the Spirit of God moving. So, now that we've talked about Shavuot and how exciting it was and how we connected, who wants to talk about social life? Let's talk about a census. Bodily fluids, theft, taxes, infidelity, and hippies and other weird people. Welcome to the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, the people book. So if we turn to our Torah portion today, uh, so Numbers 5, I brought my chumash, so I only have five books to sort through to find it. So, Numbers chapter 5, we get to learn about all of the things that uh, most people want to ignore, because it is kind of hard to connect with. All right, Numbers 5, beginning in verse 1. And Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Command the children of Israel, and they shall send out from the camp every leper, and any one who, uh, rather, with a discharge, and impure by means of a corpse, male and female alike, you shall, not, or you shall send outside the camp, and you shall uh, send them, so that they shall not render impure their camp, in which I dwell in their midst. And the children did so. Children of Israel did so, and sent them outside the camp as Adonai spoke to Moshe, so the children of Israel did. So that's fun, talking about that one. And then uh, let's go ahead and move on to thieves. So uh, verse 5, And Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, a man or woman, when they perform any sin of a person, committing a trespass against the Lord, and that person is guilty. I'm still kind of new to this one. It's a little odd how it switches. Okay. But if the man uh, has no redeemer uh, to make restitution to him, the restitution shall return to the Lord and to the priest, besides the ram for the atonement with which he will atone for it. Every gift of all of the sacred items of the Lord, or excuse me, of the children of Israel, that they shall bring to the priest, and it shall be his. And then let's go ahead and move on to the really fun one. Let's talk about infidelity. So in, uh, let's see, in verse 11, And Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If a man's wife shall go astray and commit a trespass against him, and uh, a man lay with her sexually, it shall be hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she, uh, and she was secluded, and she was defiled. Yet uh, there was no witness against her, uh, and she was not coerced. And a spirit of jealousy overcome him, 
uh, that he uh, and he was jealous with regards to his wife, and he was def- and she was defiled, or a spirit of jealousy overcame him, that he was uh, and he was jealous with regard to his wife, and she and she was not defiled. A man shall bring his wife to the priest, and he shall bring the offering for her one tenth of an ephah, and so on. And of course, as you read on it, I'm sorry, there's like commentary inlaid within. And so it's hard to just get the text out. Probably should have brought a different Kodesh. Anyway, so as you read on, what it says is that, that she goes to the priest. The priest uncovers her hair. The priest has her hold the offering. And she holds it while he is telling her, this is the Torah. This is what we are to do in this situation. He's giving her the opportunity to confess whether she has committed this act or not. And then... Uh, if she still holds that she, has, she is guiltless, then he takes, this is the only place in all of the Torah where erasing God's name is permitted, which is why we don't write God's name, lest it be erased by accident. That's why only in Torah scrolls, only in Chumash, only in the Siddur, we don't write it on our correspondence because God's name is holy and we are to protect it. We are to sanctify it. In this case, it's the only case that is permitted. They ride it on there, scratch it off into the water, and she drinks it. And the Torah says that if she is guilty, then it will end her life. If she is innocent, she will bear children. So the, the, I, I've always struggled with this one, always struggled with it. What in the world? So I, of course, looked to the rabbis. And, you know, they've been walking with God for 3,500 years. They might know a thing or two. Um, and they tell us a few things. First of all, it has to be a situation where the husband has seen things that don't look good. Seeing his wife hanging around somebody. People have to have come to her and say, you know, hey, this doesn't look good. You really need to stay away from him or, or what, you know, whatever the situation is. But she has to have been told. It can't just be a situation of, I'm angry at my wife one day, and it's like, we're going to the temple. Now. I'm going to fix this. Um, it can't be that. This has to be a situation where he really suspects that she has done something that she is not supposed to do. And, he is, and so he is taking to the priest so that, so that God will alleviate this jealousy, which if you're a man, you understand that. If you've ever seen a man look at your wife in a way, it makes you very uncomfortable because you're like, hang on now, that's my woman. (laughs) So, um, you know, so it's understandable. But, you know, and we'll get into the, the particular... Maybe, maybe what we can draw from it. But I want to I dispel some, perhaps some negative as- attitudes towards it. So first of all, just like anything else that has a death penalty in the Torah, it can't just be, you broke the Sabbath one day, you're done. It has to be all-out rebellion. It has to be a situation where you've been told by your elders, you've been told by your friends, you've been told by your family, whatever, multiple times, this is not how you walk in God's ways. And you have to be like Korah. What was Korah? What did he do? He banned a bunch of people together with him to rebel against Moses. That is when capital punishment is warranted. When you rebel 
when you know what you're doing is wrong and you do it outwardly and you bring others with you. That is when capital punishment for homosexuality, that is when capital punishment for breaking the Shabbat, any of those, that is when it comes into question, okay, now this could potentially be a capital case. Because it's not a slip-up. It's not maybe something you struggle with and you're trying to get through. It's not that. This is, I know it's wrong, I don't care. That's when it's a capital punishment. So what is this thing with the sotah? The rabbis say the same thing. This is a situation where she has been told. Her husband has communicated to her his jealousy. But I also heard a rabbi point out, their marriage is in trouble anyway. They're having problems elsewhere. The husband's desperate. Something's going on. I can't reach her. Maybe God can. So they do this. The priest works with her, counsels her, reminds her, listen, if you are guilty, what's going to happen is going to be devastating. It will end your life. But if she is guiltless, the rabbis say it repairs the marriage because now the husband knows my jealousy was unwarranted. And then the priest works to reconnect the two. Because that's what a priest is supposed to do. That's what a Kohen is supposed to do, is to make disciples and to connect husband and wife and to unite people together so that we can be one body, one temple. Uh, and if you look, it actually, uh, the same language is used with regards to the flood. So when you look at the flood and you study that, the same Hebrew language and the verbiage is the same as the sotah. What did we do with the flood? Where did, where did we step out of line? We decided to have other gods. We decided to deny our creator. We decided to go and after others and connect with them. So God had to wash it away. And that's what the sotah is. But this time it's different. This time it's a connection between a husband and a wife. Just like... Humanity is like God's wife. That's, that's how he sees. You know, he talks about the children of Israel being his bride and things like that. And we see that in Revelation. You know, the, the, the bride of the lamb and so forth. So it's, it's, the language is similar. I would encourage you to go and look at that. It's quite fascinating. And so then we're going to move on from there to the hippie. So kind of working on it. I'm not a Nazarite, though. Um, I'm going to wait till the temple's here <laughs> and maybe do it then. Otherwise, my hair might be dragging the ground. Um, we don't know when that's going to happen. So. But uh, the Nazir. So in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, And Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman articulates a vow, a vow of a Nazarite to abstain, uh, for the Lord, he shall abstain with wine, intoxicating drink, vinegar of wine, the vinegar of intoxicating drink, you shall not drink, and he shall not drink anything with which grapes are soaked, and grapes fresh and dried he shall not eat. All of the days of his Nazarite ship uh, from anything that may be derived from the grapevine, uh, from the pits to the skin, he shall not eat. 
All of the days of his vow of the Nazarite ship, a razor shall not pass on his head. Until the completion of the days, he shall abstain from, uh, excuse me, abstain for the Lord, and he shall be holy. The hair of his head shall be grown out. And all of the days of his abstinence uh, to the Lord, he shall not approach a corpse. To his father and to his mother, to his brother and to his sister, he shall not become impure from them upon their death. Since the crown of his God is upon his head, all of the days of his Nazarite ship, he shall be holy to Adonai. All right, well, that was fun. Uh, anybody uh, ready to go ahead and move back to the mountain, to Shavuot? Let's talk about good, fun things, you know, godly things, spiritual things. Um, anybody? All right, so we're going to go ahead and return to the mountain. We're going to go so that God will teach us his ways. Welcome to the book, the, the book, the book of Vayikra. There we go. The book of Vayikra, Leviticus. The God book. It's about holy things. The altar, the Kohanim, the Leviim, the Mishkan. Spiritual stuff. So let's turn to Leviticus 15. And we'll start in verse 31. And you shall separate the children of Israel from their impurity, and they shall not lie in their impurity by their rendering my tabernacle that it is in their midst impure. This is the law for the one who has a discharge uh, from the, this is always uncomfortable, and of the one for whom semen uh, will be emitted to uh, become impure through it. And, um, of the woman who is suffering with her menstruation and the one who has a discharge for a man or for a woman and for the one who lies with an impure woman. Hmm, I thought we were going to godly things. What happened? All right, and then let's move on over to verse, we're going to actually back up to verse 23. If he... Um, is on the bedding or of any article on which... Wait a minute. Did I do the wrong reference? I think I did. We're talking about the menstruating woman. That is not... Okay, so what it was supposed to be was it was supposed to be about... Um... Oh, I don't know what I did. It's Leviticus 5, not 15. I almost read this one passage that I always read, and it always comes out wrong. It doesn't seem to matter, but I get the SH and the S backwards. And so it, it, yeah, it winds up becoming a bad word. I'll let your imagination have fun with that one. All right, so 523. All right, and so verse 23, it says, once I find it, that it shall be that when he sins and is guilty, he shall restore the robbed item that he robbed uh, or the proceeds of the exploitation that he exploited or the deposit that was deposited with him or the lost item that he found or of any item with regard uh, to which he had taken a false oath. He shall repay its principal and a fifth of it he shall add to it. 
uh, to him to whom it belongs, he shall give it on that day of his guilt. Oh, I'm sorry, it was uh, Leviticus 5, verse 23. Yeah. Oh, apparently the chapters are broken up differently. Okay, <laughs> that's, uh, I guess, the difference between the Christian and the Jewish Bible there. So it might be then, since we're towards the end, it is probably beginning of chapter 6. Um, and then, of course, if we back up, this may actually be in chapter 5, is back on uh, verse 14. So in verse 14, it says, And Adonai spoke to Moshe, a person who commits a trespass or sins unwittingly with regards to the sacred item of the Lord. He shall bring his restitution, his offering to the Lord. Uh, an unblemished ram, a flock according to the valuation of, of silver shekels, according to the sacred shekel as a guilt offering, which he has sinned from the sacred property. He shall pay the one-fifth, uh, he shall add to it, and he shall give it to the priest, and the priest shall atone for him with the ram of the guilt offering, shall be forgiven him. And if a person sins and performs one of the commandments of Adonai that shall not be performed, and he did not know it, and he has become guilty, he shall bear his iniquity, and so forth. So it kind of sounds similar, doesn't it, actually? Uh, and let's go ahead and move to chapter 10. And I promise there's a point. I know this is kind of boring. If you uh, give more tzedakah, you get better jokes. Let's see, bad joke. All right, verse 9. And or We'll start in verse 8, actually. Uh, Adonai spoke to Aharon, saying, You shall not drink wine or any intoxicating drink, neither you nor your sons with you, upon your entry into the tent of meeting, that you, shall, uh, that you not die. This is an eternal statute. For your generations. And then in 21, verse 11. So we're doing some jumping. Any of you went to Bible drill, this is where you get to exercise those skills. All right, verse 11. And you shall, this is regarding the priest, you shall not go near any dead person. Uh, you shall not become impure even for your father or for your mother. And uh, he shall not emerge from the sanctuary, and, uh, and he not profane the sanctuary of his God. For the crown of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am Adonai. Did you guys notice something? In the book of Numbers, and in the book of Leviticus, we're talking about very similar things. If you notice, the language was similar. If you can get past my stumbling, um, the language is similar. We're talking about impurity, ritual impurity. We're talking about theft. We're talking about unfaithfulness. We're talking about somebody who's set apart for God. So it sounds like what we read in Numbers a moment ago but why are these laws being essentially repeated in the God book and then in the people book? How do we connect? How does this work? 
We're coming off the mountain. We need to learn to apply what we learned while we were there. So ritual purity, it's not just about you. It's not just about your personal relationship with God. Certain impurities are contagious. So when you study the Torah and you learn about the various levels of impurity, some of them, if you contract an impurity, you might actually be able to pass it on to somebody else. Now, this sounds ridiculous. Why would this even matter? You know, temple was nailed to the cross, right? Veil was torn. This is all done. Go read Ezekiel. Go read all the prophets. There will be a third temple. This is important. But let's look at it maybe from a spiritual standpoint. We had amazing connection, amazing camaraderie. I didn't hear about any fighting, any bickering, you know, things like that. It seemed like we were all of one heart and one mind. But imagine if we had had that. Imagine if we had had somebody that just had a really bad attitude. How that could have spread, how that could have disrupted the unity that we experienced that weekend. It's contagious. So we have to think about it from a spiritual aspect in a standpoint that you are essentially your brother's keeper. How you behave, how you conduct yourself in the privacy, and I'm pointing at myself right now, with what you struggle with when people aren't looking will affect those around you. And so we need to think about that. It can affect your ability to be used by God because your vessel's full of some sludge that needs to get out of there. God's wanting to fill you with something incredible. But you got all this sludge that you don't want to get rid of. I've had it for years. It's been breaking down in there for a long time. I'm sure eventually it's going to turn to something great. Poo is poo. <laughs> so, and it, it, that can affect. It can affect your ability to connect. It can affect your ability to minister to those around you. It can affect their ability to connect with God. Just like a spiritual contamination, a rather ritual impurity, keeps you from being able to go into the temple. You can keep others out too. And it's, we're not talking about a situation of, you know, you laid your father or your mother to rest, God forbid. But if you had to do a close relative or whatever, you are ritually impure. Is that a sin? Absolutely not. It's a way of life. But it does keep you from being able to serve God in the temple for a period. It's just the part of it. But if you aren't careful and you come into contact with others around you because you don't care, this doesn't matter. It's not that big of a deal. Did God really say well, now that person can't serve God. Now that person can't minister because you didn't care. You did not love. It was either, it was either just apathy or, or downright disregard. So think about that. We can't apply that in a spiritual way. So they can transfer within the camp. And this would actually prevent the communion with God because of our carelessness or our apathy. So yes, on the temple, it says, you know, you can't bring a corpse-contaminated person into the temple. It would contaminate the temple, but that person also contaminates the community. So it starts here. We learned about it up there. We learned about the effects up there. Now we need to learn about the effects down here. We need to apply those principles that we learned when we were connecting, when we were drawing close to God and say, all right, I need to take this and I need to bring it down to this real world and how can I apply it? 
so that more people can connect with God when we go back to the mountain. So daily life application, you know, it's easy to see even if it's just only on a spiritual level. Now let's look at theft. Stealing from God, if you notice, you go back and you look in both Numbers and and Leviticus, that stealing from God and from another person bears essentially the same restitution, the same thing. You think, well, you know, I only sinned against a person. That's not a big deal. God says, that's my kid. That's my son. That's my daughter. (laughs) Whatever you've done to them, you've done to me. Remember what the master said. So the punishment's actually the same. The restitution is actually the same. Because when you take something that does not belong to you from another person, you have robbed them their dignity, just as much as you've robbed God of His. God says, I am holy. This is the way I want things to be done. And when you don't do it that way, it's the same thing as if you took from a friend. But I'm your father. Why would you do that? So we can't say, oh, it was just a person. It's not that big of a deal. I remember hearing one time, well, I only sinned against a person. But if you go back and read what it said here, you sinned against me. You stole something that belonged to them, but you sinned against me. Because you have made my name a byword. Now let's look at the fun, the infidelity, the sultan, the lying or the taking from God. Do we see the connection there too? Like I alluded to the flood. But when we look at Leviticus, it's talking about when somebody takes something from the temple that's been designated for a purpose and they use it for something else. We've stolen something from God. And we have a process of making that right. The sota is similar. Another man has potentially stolen the relationship between a husband and a wife. And just like if you go back and you look at what happens when somebody contaminates or, or takes something from the temple, it hinders the ability of people to connect because there's an item that God wants in His service that's gone or contaminated or whatever. It's disrupted the flow of unity within the community. And if you've ever been in a community where infidelity has occurred and somebody who's a pillar in the community, you know how disruptive that is. It is devastating. I've seen churches split over it. Or just apathy overcome the people because they don't want to deal with it. So when we think about the fact that God says, I want you to keep what I designate as holy, holy. He says the same thing with our relationships. Keep it holy. And now we talk about the Kohen and the Nazir. What, what do they have in common? So in Leviticus, we talked about the Kohen. We talked about the Kohen's um, set-apartness. In fact, the last part we read, it said that my anointing, my crown of anointing has been placed upon his head. What did it say about the Nazir? The crown of his God is upon his head. Same language. So what does that mean? You don't have to be on the mountain to serve God. You don't have to be the Kohen Gadol to minister to God in an intimate, real way. God made a path for a, for a normal person 
to connect with him and say, you know what, you're special to me too because you've chosen to give up the same things that a priest is to give up when he's going to minister to me. You've chosen to do that too. So you know what, I'm going to place my crown upon your head too. And you're going to minister to me. You're going to minister for me. You're going to be my priest amongst the people down here in the camp. While the other one is serving on the mountain, you're going to be down here relating, connecting, drawing people close, raising disciples. So we learn that you don't have to be a Kohen serving in the temple to be set apart or to serve God in a special way. Anyone can serve or draw close to God, much like a Kohen. An Israelite would take, he would take on the similar restrictions and enjoy the similar closeness and devotion. So, as I've said, 20 years, give or take, of practicing Judaism, I know a lot of traditions, I know a lot of laws. If you've seen my library, uh, close to half of it's in the Beit Midrash, and the other half is taking up an entire wall in my house. Uh, Hashem has blessed me with a lot of books, and I have read them. Uh, so I do know a lot. Um, they say I don't know that much about the Gospels, but I do. Um, so uh, I tried. I'm just not as good as Rabbi on the, on the uh, uh, Nacho Libre. But um, I've, lo- I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about the traditions, the laws, the customs, and, and all of these things that you do and don't do from the way that you tire tzitzit to the way you put your clothes on in the morning and all of this stuff. But the question is, is does Judaism even have any right or any uh, claim to fame to actually do this, to have all these traditions? Is there a biblical defense for beautifying our houses for daily, personal, communal life with all these customs? So I think we just saw a perfect example. We have, we have in the book of Leviticus all of these things that God says, this is how I want you to conduct yourselves when you enter into my house. And then we see those same concepts transferred over into how we relate to one another and actually see the connection that when we step outside the bounds within the camp, it actually can affect not only us, but it can affect others when they try to ascend the mountain. They may not be able to because of what we did or didn't do. So Judaism has done something amazing. If you, if you look at the time of the temple period, of course, you know, you hear a lot of people say that it was like this great time. It was like, oh, you know, if only we could have been back there. Oh, my gosh, if you had any idea. Every scholar that you will ever find, every legitimate scholar, um, they actually say Judaisms. Actually, this way, sorry, we're in English. Actually, I guess you would see it that way, wouldn't you? Okay, um, so Judaisms, not just one, many. There was no unifying voice in that camp. Every sect of Judaism had its own little mini Sanhedrin. Every, every one of them fought with the other about uh, whether they're keeping the Torah correctly or not. There was no unity there. It was the most divided period probably in Israel's history prior to the kings when they just had the judges. So it wasn't this great, amazing uh, time in life. The rabbis realized that they needed to do something. They realized exile's coming. They realized that when we went to exile in Babylon, it was because we didn't teach our children the Torah. We didn't make it relatable, real, tangible. 
We kept it just at the temple and we went about our business in the camp. How do we fix that? Teach your kids. You want to know the first thing that kids did back in the time of the master when they started learning Torah? They'd go into the Beit Midrash, had this little tablet of clay. It wasn't baked yet, so you could still write in it. They would write the scripture that the word of God is like honey on the lips. They would pour honey on it, lick it. Well, what'd, what'd, you, what'd you learn in, uh, in shul today, Yisha? <laughs> Honey's great. <laughs> and a little dirt don't hurt either. You know? So they, they came up with ways to connect the children to the Torah. And they actually started learning Leviticus too, by the way. And they said, let the pure learn of the pure, of what is pure. So, so they, they found ways, and what they did is they took concepts that were in the mountain, concepts that were on the Beit HaMikdash, the customs, the traditions, and they're like, you know what, we can take elements of that. We can bring it home. It doesn't have to stay up there. God has given us a way, He has shown us in His Torah that we're actually supposed to take principles of His connection with us on the mountain and bring it into the camp. So that's what we're going to do. We don't have an altar anymore, but we've got a table. And we're going to make every meal a time of connection and a time where we take our food and we elevate God with what we eat. We elevate God with our connection with our family and our friends. We sit down at the dinner table. We bless God for what he's given us, just like it was on the Temple Mount, when the priests would take their off, the offerings that people would bring in and they would keep a portion for themselves and the rest of it would go wherever it needed to go and that was their meal for the day. And they got to enjoy some of the best food. We're going to do something like that. We're going to make Shabbat extra special. We're going to take candles. We're going to take just like the two loaves that were brought before God. We're going to use that every Shabbat because two loaves are taken to the temple on Shavuot and they're a wave offering. We're going to do that. We're going to connect with God by doing physical things because this is a physical world. And if we just keep it, keep it intellectual, what happens? Look at different religions that are purely intellectual and there's your answer. They fall apart. You have to have tradition because in spite of what the Protestant world, and I can say that because I am one, in spite of what they understand, they think that traditions divide people. They don't. Traditions actually unify. How many of you observe Thanksgiving? Who doesn't love grandma's dressing or stuffing or cranberry or whatever? My grandmother's cherry pie, her pecan pie. But we, every family has their own tradition, and we would always go back and go, yeah, I remember when Grandma used to do this. And what would you do? You would do that thing too. Why? Because it connected. It brings everybody together, even family members I don't want to have anything to do with. Well, we can come together on Thanksgiving and talk about what Grandma did, and we can connect on that level. Tradition is a beautiful thing. Tradition brings us together, but it has to have meaning. It can't just be, you know, like, a, you know, like I've often heard said, that uh, they, they took the rump roast, cut the ends off of it, and put it in the pan. And family's like, why, why are you doing that, Mom? I don't know. It's what my mother always did. 
Well, that doesn't make any sense. Let's go ask her mom. I don't know. That's what your grandmother always did. Okay. Let's go talk to grandma. Because the pan was too small. So, I mean, it had meaning. You know, it wasn't necessarily like, probably ought to communicate why she was doing that so we know whether or not that's a tradition to continue doing, right? So traditions should have function. They should mean something. They, they need to identify with something. And I can tell you, after 20 years of practicing Judaism, the traditions draw us close. Because we can all come together. You can go to any synagogue. Uh, well, Orthodox synagogue, we'll put it that way. Most conservative. Reform? Depends. But you can go to any traditional synagogue Sit there, never been there a day in your life, plug right in. Same prayers, same structure, same process for thousands of years, connecting, drawing people close. It's a beautiful thing. And it is actually what saved Judaism. It's actually what saved the Jewish people. It's actually what gave us the apostolic writings. It's actually what gave us the followers of the way. That understanding that we have to bring physical representations of a spiritual concept. Otherwise, we will lose the spiritual concept too. And actually, for the sects of the way that actually didn't do that, like the Ibionites, they wound up rejecting Paul altogether because they didn't understand him anymore, because he was a Pharisee. He talked like a Pharisee. He dressed like a Pharisee. He ate like a Pharisee. He lived like a Pharisee. He didn't say, I was a Pharisee. He said, brothers, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. And because of that background, they couldn't understand him because they threw out all of those traditions and all of those things that the people had established to help us connect with God and even just the little things, even the way we bless God at the table, the way we bless God when we're finished eating, the way we pray to him when we get up in the morning, the way we pray before we go to bed, the way we connect when we're at the appointed times. And even though there's no temple, we still, we still connect with God at the appointed times. It's dress rehearsal. We're getting ready for when the temple's actually here, when the master is here sitting on his throne, when the priest is ministering, and we're all together again on another Shavuot. And we'll know what to do because we've been practicing. So we just saw some examples. But what we should be doing is taking the principles and the beautification from the mountain, infusing them into our personal and communal life. Because it brings closeness in the here and the now. It also cultivates a yearning for the return to the mountain. Because we're looking at it, what did Paul say? This is just a shadow. The essence is Messiah. Imagine, imagine how awesome this was. This Shavuot, for those of you who were here, that was just a shadow. It's just a glimpse of what it would be like when all of God's people are together, serving as one voice, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And I just, I felt like I got just a little bit of that connection that the apostles yearned for, that they talked about, guys, it's just around the corner. We're going to be there. Let's hold fast.
So the book of Leviticus is over. The God book. The mountain. Now we're in Numbers. The people book. The world. Life. The camp. So let's elevate daily life by being intentional. Let's dedicate even common things for a higher call. The way we eat. The way we behave. Let us cultivate holiness by reflecting the beauty of what we experienced on the mountain in the pattern of holiness that he showed us in his house. Let us build the kingdom. I want to go ahead and close with this. 2 Timothy 4. I know this will be right. We'll start in verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Messiah Yeshua, who is about to judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Proclaim the word. Be ready when it is convenient or inconvenient. Confront, rebuke, encourage with complete patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not put up with sound instruction, but they will pile up for themselves teachers in keeping with their own desires to have their ears tickled. And they will turn away from hearing the truth and wander off to myths. You, however, keep a clear mind in all things. Withstand hardship. Do the work of proclaiming the good news and fulfill your service. For I am ready, or excuse me, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought to the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there will be reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not for me only, but also for everyone who has longed for his appearing. Amen. As I said before, Shavuot is over. But what gives it and indeed all of the appointed times, their value is by returning to the camp, returning to our lives with the fire still ablaze and infusing this life with the joy of our salvation. And may our King find us laboring in His field when His Messiah comes speedily in our days. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.